0: Welcome to a new episode of Forward, a podcast where we meet researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm your host, Alison Innes. You've probably heard of landscapes and seascapes, but have you ever heard of bookscapes? Today's researcher investigates the history of reading and attempts to unravel the complex relationship between women and written text in early modern Britain. Dr. Leah Knight from the Department of English Language and Literature spoke with me earlier this year about textual culture and her digital project featuring the unpublished manuscript of 17th century poet Hester Poulter. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Leah Knight, an associate professor with the Department of English Language and Literature. Dr. Knight studies early modern English poetry, prose, and the culture they emerge from. She's authored two books, of Books and Botany in Early Modern England and Reading Green in Early Modern England, which were both awarded the annual book prize of the British Society for Literature and Science. More recently, Dr. Knight has been investigating the history of reading, examining the evidence of reading materials, habits, and experiences associated with Anne Clifford, who lived 1590 to 1676. Leah has also turned to the long neglected manuscripts of the poet Hester Poulter, 1605 to 1678, and has launched a digital project with Dr. Wendy Wall of Northwestern University that was selected as the year's best project in digital scholarship by the Society for the Study of Early Modern Women and Gender in 2018. So welcome, Leah. Thank you so much, Alison. <laughs> it is a pleasure to have you here, and I am really excited to hear more about your past research and your current exciting research. And just before we uh, we started recording, you were mentioning that it feels like a long time ago that you, that you worked on some of your botany work But I'm really interested, what's this connection between plants and books?
1: Yeah, I suppose there are any number of ways to answer that, and that's probably why I spent so much time trying to do so, and still feel as if I barely touched upon it. Although there were the two books, as you say, the first of which derived very directly from my dissertation, and looked at 16th century plants and print cultures, where I wound up focusing my attention. I just noticed in the course of my graduate studies and studying early modern literature, how frequently English writers were turning to tropes, to metaphors and similes related to plants in various ways, in order to explain what they were doing as writers, in order to explain the way in which they, they read, the way in which they reproduced and collected and made use of and uh, made fruitful, a word that we still use, of course, um, the, the, what they read. Um, and this was not a new set of tropes by any means in the period, but what I f- it extends back to the classical era, What I was interested in, since my focus was that that time period, as I say, the 16th century or the early modern period in in England was the new ways in which those old tropes were being deployed um, by poets but also by, strangely to me at first, botanists, people who were actually revolutionizing, changing, reforming the study of plants uh, in a way that we associate with science now but which also had a very deep connection at the time with medicinal herbalism and spanned a lot of different fields that, again, we tend to separate we tend to presume that they have always been separate art and science and the faculty of humanities the faculty of sciences and never the twain shall meet in fact that's actually quite a new phenomenon and that became very apparent when i studied these discourses both technically literary and technically scientific and saw the same deployment of metaphorical language and thinking in order to explain both poetry and plants
0: so what are some of those metaphors or tropes that come out? Um... Oh,
1: there's so many that it actually does. It, I, mean, you, I'm a, I think I was first aware of these as a child. We had a book, uh, in weirdly, in this closet that I would pull out. It was called the, A Child's Garden of Verse, this 19th century deployment. And, of course, the Victorians were keen on the language of flowers. And that was that, was that period sort of way of taking up that, again, very ancient conjunction, I guess, of, of plants and, and, and verse. Uh, in the period that I studied, there were changes in the study of plants, partly because of um, European travels and trade that brought new plants into play, often plants that were, in their view, nameless because they didn't know or understand indigenous names, um, or that they thought they knew the names of from antiquity. and then they were, um, So they were working with the linguistic material that we attach to plants. Um, as much as they were working with the plants themselves. So in other words, when we think about plants, we often think about nature. But at this time, as often, when humans interact with things in the world, working with plants was as much an art, an art form, and a linguistic one, as it turns out, um, as it was a matter of encountering you know, nature in some un- unvarnished form. Um, so I'm not sure if that really answers your question. There are so many there, are, you know, forests of fancy. Um, I don't remember the specific, they, they appear in titles over and over again. And, um, uh, but not just titles, it sort of seems to run through, run deeply in the thinking about the commonness, the prop, common property that uh, writing, uh, provided, again, this is in an era before intellectual property rights were firmed up in ways that we recognize, even though they're not dissolving again. <laughs> so there, it, just, it, it just seems, well, so ripe for, for study from so many directions. Yes,
0: and I suppose even the layout of the page, sometime and in terms of title pages with with the thick fancy borders oh, yeah, and there motifs of print- leaves and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, the printers fleuron, the very word leaf, of course, happens to be a pun in English, as you know, in other languages as well yes. for you know the material uh, page as well as for uh, what, what appears on plants. So yeah, they're just it, 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 I couldn't stop. It was almost hard to. It was really hard to.
0: Why 16th, 17th century? England. What What is it about that period that resonated with you for some reason? <laughs>
1: That's actually a very good question. Well, I'll be honest, when I began my PhD, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the notion of specialization and that there could only be one period that I was either responsible for or allowed to study and think about and teach. And I did some strategic thinking about that. I thought I shall firmly position myself somewhere so that I can both cast my mind back credibly into the medieval period and antiquity if needed and look forward. It's early modernity after all, so why shouldn't I look at what comes next? So there was something strategic and and resistant about that. However, as I went on, I became really intrigued by all the changes in the literary culture in England in that time, um, partly impelled by changes in technological you know factors like printing press the movable type that came to Europe middle of the 15th century but you know only slowly migrated in any meaningful way to England and changed the game really changed the game for writers for readers and for just everyone in relation to the what I call the textual culture
0: so in terms of this textual culture then was England fairly isolated or was the textual culture were they engaging with texts and ideas more broadly
1: Oh, no, well, this is one of those oil Um uh, Yes, yeah. England was, uh, in, is in many ways, considered to have been more or less belated in terms of the flowering uh, of its literary renaissance, you know, uh, compared to, say, Italian and so on. Um, however, there was a lot of interpenetration between England and the continent, uh, especially in the Latin uh, side of things, right? When, when people were writing in Latin and reading in Latin, when that was the lingua franca, that was the sort of passport language that would let you you add your words and your works travel, that, you know, was a a point of connection.
0: So Britain, England was yeah. was a little bit behind where Europe was in, in adopting the Yeah,
1: even in adopting, you know, the, the technology of the printing mm-hmm. press comes later a couple of decades later okay. and then there's just one or two and frankly they produce quite hideous work for a long time when the people or counterparts in Europe are beginning to produce quite beautiful things. Um, I suppose that was another reason why the 16th century was interesting to me or why I wound up honing in on it for that first book in particular. I recognized that all of these things, these changes in the botanical culture and the literary culture in the 16th century, they were nascent then and they just exploded in the 17th century in all sorts of fascinating ways, but ways that are still more familiar to us. And so the work didn't seem as pressing because they remain more familiar, more popular. Many people have heard of tulip tulip mania, that sort of botanical phenomenon in Holland and and surrounding areas. Uh, People are more aware even of 17th century texts, partly because of the the way the printing technology changed, or not the technology, but the approach to it, the print culture. So many 16th century texts in English are presented in this absolutely god-awful, we would call it a font, typeface. It's called black letter. Gothic sometimes, and it looks like if you've ever received a very, very stodgy wedding invitation, it looks like the calligraphy all slanted and thick, and each letter looks almost like the last, so it's very hard to, to discern what's being said. It's hard to, to read for us, um, and partly for that reason, I think a lot of later texts, and it really isn't that much later. By the 17th century, the text, the, the typeface being used predominantly in England is called, is Roman, and we still use. Times, New. Roman. It's a very familiar, it's very accessible. So I sort of felt like I was pushing things back just far enough by going there. Um, although my, li- my more recent projects focus on the 17th century and I certainly have no aversion
0: to that. <laughs> I want to come to, you, to your work that you've done with Anne Clifford. Yeah. Um, because I, I saw you give a talk a year or two ago now about this idea about bookscapes. And I thought that was really fascinating because I'm used to thinking about books as like we study them for the words that are inside them. Mm -hmm. But you seem to be suggesting that books themselves we can think about as objects and think about differently. So I am I just want you to talk about that. Oh, thank
1: you. Well, actually, it does present a useful segue from my previous work, although it took me a while to realize that. And I was a little alarmed at one point when I thought, I've been working all this time on plants and so on. Now, I want to know more about this person, Anne Clifford, about the book she read. What on earth could the connection possibly be? But there is one. And as you say, it's partly to do with the material book, with its inhabitation of a space, same space as we do. And when those books are so frequently, as I noticed, troped as, figured as, as plant material, there is actually more of a connection there uh, than, than is first apparent. When I first came to Brock, actually, with a few colleagues here, I ran a couple of conferences called Greenscapes. And it only occurred to me in retrospect that that was a sort of a connection between my previous work on, on the botanical and my more recent work on on books and the history of reading. That's the field in which my work on Clifford um, uh, appears. And some of it has appeared most recently in a book that I co-edited with my colleague Elizabeth Sauer and with Micheline White, who's at Carleton, called Women's Bookscapes. And uh, that's where, uh, I guess we do the most work to define that term. Um, it, it probably looks like we, we've stolen it from someone named James Raven, who has a book of the same title, but in fact, it was one of those moments of, I don't know what you call it, convergence, or, or noticing, Serendipity. Actually. Serendipity, I don't know. There's no intellectual property in that sort of thing. That's how words come to be. Um, Bookscape is, in. Uh, It's a coining for us to the extent that, yeah, it refers to not just the sort of surround, the textual surround uh, that is in our world that, you know, we tend, we frequently tend not to notice. I'm looking again around this room and realizing that even though it's bookless, it's still, it's by no means text-free, right? And we're still governed by that. Um, But Bookscapes uh, is about the mentality as well that you carry with you, in, within you, informed by the books and the text, the, the reading and the writing in your life. So it has a kind of flexibility in our usage of it. It's not just about a, a geographical term, which which it can be, you can use it that way. Um, I think we were influenced partly by, there are many ways in which the, the, that term scape can be a suffix that can help us sort of relate to media in our lives, because of the way in which they suffuse our existence right they are outside of us but they're also inside of us and so is a landscape we think of a landscape as a genre in painting as something we look at there it is on the wall or is something out in nature that oh look at that beautiful landscape when we stand at the edge of the escarpment but in fact it's in us as much as it's out there and the more we know about perception and and so on and subjectivity i'm thinking of that <laughs> but the, what is it the dress you know is it is it yellow and uh, golden, white. golden, golden, white, or, or, bloom, and black. or bloom black. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was just thinking about <laughs> yeah. that the other day. Um, yeah, so getting at um, that the perception of uh, the ways in which the presence of
0: books and texts
1: in our lives is part of what that work is about as well.
0: So why Anne Clifford? Who, who was she?
1: I <laughs> Ann Clifford. Who was she? Well, again, it's such a learning process. I actually think the strangest thing that she came to be my focus serendipitously, somebody, and I still don't know who, it must have been a colleague, put her book, her diary, in my departmental mailbox. And I was looking at it one day in my office thinking, what's this? Why is this here? And as I flipped through, I'd never read this before, it's understood to be one of the earliest uh, diaries written by an English woman, Uh, a secular diary is how it's considered. Um, And I was reading it and thinking, my God, this is dull as dishwater, isn't it? Why couldn't she have written a more interesting diary if you're going to bother? And I learned more about her and that in fact this diary, which we think of as a genre that's very personal or a, very private and for expressing one's emotions, again, we have to historicize it and in her case personalize it because it became apparent that that diary was really useful to her decades-long litigation in pursuit of a uh, her identity, of her lands and titles that she saw them, that were her possessions, which had she'd been disinherited from by her father. She was mm. his only child, and he, instead of uh, naming her as heir in his will, shipped things over to his brother, and his heir's male, as they put it, masculine, you know, only the, yeah. only the male line. Anyways, um, as part of this this diary, she records her encounters with various male authorities battling this injustice as she saw it but she also records the occasional more quotidian things what she was wearing what she was eating who she was visiting and what she read and it was those moments that stood out to me and made me think this is a way in which I can bring the other half of humanity back into focus in my research. As I said, when I was working on the 16th century herbals, they are by men, they are not necessarily for men, they are frequently read by women, and we know this, owned by women, annotated, um, used by women who were frequently medical practitioners in their homes and in their communities, and yet that didn't feature largely in my research for whatever reason, in that that area, here was a moment and a way in which I felt that I could, in good faith and with the kind of enthusiasm that makes me do good work, bring women's involvement in textual culture front and center in my work, which I really wanted to do at that point in my life.
0: So she was a noblewoman then. Oh, yes. Yes. So she had a lot of books. Oh, that's a good (laughs) question.
1: (laughs) Yes, she was. She was a noble woman. She was born to an earl and a countess, so she's a bigwig, um, and she has... Her own, no doubt, collection of a lot of books, but is also just exposed to an enormous number of books, both from her father, her mother, her peers, the men. She socialized like a mad woman, was all over the place. She had, by the time she inherited those properties, which she eventually did, in the 60s, she won, but not because she won in a court of law, only because the men died. They're all dead. Someone has to take over. Uh, She had six castles and she would migrate amongst them after she'd renovated them because they were all falling down. No doubt she had a lot of books, but not just books, that's the other thing she had. She wrote many, many letters and she uh, made these inscriptions on plaques that she embedded in the walls of these castles, some of which are still there today. Um, So her her embeddedness in a really rich and personal but also largely so, like a very 17th century literary or textual culture, it seems so emblematic. In many cases, she is treated as a kind of textbook case in the history of reading, which is a field that, again, has sort of seen its stock soar since the start of the century. So she, she's, she's much studied for her role as a reader and for the role of reading in her life. Um, I wanted to kind of consolidate that work and also amplify it and make it more, I wanted to make it speak, I suppose. Reading is often silent, as we know, and reading leaves few traces. And so even in that diary where I found these remarks by her, I read Ovid's Metamorphoses, I read Sydney's Arcadia, she would leave it at that. And I, I was intrigued and frustrated and motivated by that. What can we do with this? We don't have uh, extensive annotations in the margins of your copies of your books, Anna Clifford. So what do we do with the fact that you read this book and not that one? You read Sydney, but not apparently Shakespeare. Um, what do we do? And I'm still working on figuring that out oh. a decade later. And I know
0: you take your students in your class up to the archives here mm-hmm. at in up in the library mm-hmm. and you get them looking at old books. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what they're doing and what you're you're doing with that
1: yeah what I try to do with those assignments is make the impression upon them that when they study a text in edited form in an anthology often in a textbook um, maybe in an excerpted form or modernized that that is that is a text and that is one version of uh, the text or the title that they they think they are reading, but it is only one. And one of the ways to make that most vivid is to bring them back to When that text first manifested itself in the world, say, in an early printed book and, um, you know, a Bible from 1609 or um, Raleigh's History of the World, you know, published from, you know, he was imprisoned in the Tower of London, but out it comes anyways, or one of those herbals, we actually happen to have two copies of Gerard's herbal uh, up in special collections in rare books, Um, when they encounter those as individual material objects, much like meeting a person, it's completely different from reading uh, about a person. Um, they're they're meeting it in all its material individuality, turning its pages, finding the marginal notes, finding little things stuffed between the pages, confronting simply the size of some of these books, the monumental size of them. Um, and I mean, many students have spoken of it as quite a transformative experience. So I, I always value that. It's my favorite part.
0: That's great. Um... Yeah, I've I've seen some of those books when you've had them out with students, and it, it's 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 amazing to think of like this ginormous book, <laughs> and then somebody consulting it or reading it, mm-hmm. and and how they would just hold it mm-hmm. or if they would even hold mm-hmm. it or if they had yeah book
1: furniture that would surround yeah. it what if you wanted to be taking notes about it where yeah uh, all of that sort of thing is, is fascinating to me and is part of the, the idea of the bookscape as well mm-hmm. and that it needs to be historicized yeah
0: so then you move from Anne clifford into mm-hmm. another into a, another woman a poet mm-hmm. um hester poulter Am I saying that correctly?
1: I like the way you say it. Oh. I mean, I don't think anyone knows, so I think you can say Pulter. I quite like that. We tend to say Hester Poulter. It's quite a funny name. It does tend to make you giggle the first few times you say it. Um, and yes, I feel as if I first adopted Anne Clifford and then into my life, pops uh Hester Poulter um, arrived in my life, I think it was in 20... Oh, goodness. Fifteen. I didn't really bring Hester Poulter into my life. Wendy Wall did. Wendy is a, is a professor at Northwestern University, and I had been in a faculty seminar with her at the Shakespeare Association of America at one of these conferences where you share your ideas, and and it had just sparked uh, the idea of a collaboration. And the collaboration was based on another seminar for that conference called What to do with A found object, I think, or with found, I can't remember what it was called. The idea was when you have a recovery of something that's been lost in the archives, that hasn't been read for hundreds of years, and now you realize this is really interesting, an interesting artifact from that period. How do we begin to integrate that into our accounts of that period? When we teach students or when we write books, where does this, how do we make it fit? How do we popularize it? And so we invited all sorts of other scholars to find ways to do that specifically with the manuscript of Hester Poulter. Uh, which was, as far as we know, unread between the late 17th century, uh, when she died, and the 1970s, when it came up for auction, was bought by a university, University of Leeds, and then seems to have disappeared again from view, partly owing to cataloguing matters, back into view in the 1990s, and scholars start to attend to it. And it's this magnificent uh, bound volume, a fair copy, in a lovely script, over 120 original poems by another noblewoman <laughs> Hester Pultival that she's uh, who's living from 1605 to 1678 so roughly at the same time as Clifford um, but whereas my interest with Clifford is in her reading, uh, my interest with Poulter is in, is in her writing. Although th- there's a lot of crossover between those, as you might imagine.
0: Yeah. So what do we know about her as a person? What do we
1: know about Poulter as a person? <laughs> We're
0: learning more every day, I can tell you Excellent. that much.
1: Yeah, including her birth date, which was, I mean, if you look in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, it still says her birth date was 1595. We now know, I think with reasonable certainty, she was born 10 years after that, which is not a trivial amount of time. Um, So we're learning more every day just this summer. uh, Actually, as a result of publishing her work in what we call the Poulter Project online, which is an open access site, we were contacted by an Australian scholar, Carrie Plunkett, who provided us with the information that's let us confirm the date of her marriage, which was 1620. And again, these might seem like the most trivial facts when she was born, when she was married, But given how little we often know about women from this period, literally any fact, almost like literally any text, is is incalculably valuable. Uh, And that becomes truer with Poulter, partly because a lot of her verse has an autobiographical cast to it. She's frequently reflecting on her daughters, the death of her children. She had fifteen. Almost all of them died before she did, uh, and she um, lived through the civil wars in England in the 1640s. And you know, so when you're when you're working with a writer who whose work has that autobiographical cast to it, these sorts of facts also come into play. Yeah. Yeah. Poulter was born in 1605 in Ireland, but she was an English woman, and returns to and is raised in England, and marries uh, a man who owns a property called Broadfield in Hertfordshire and she spends it appears most of her adult life on this country estate Broadfield uh, where she frequently speaks of being confined and her confinement there could have many reasons partly to do with her 15 pregnancies and the illnesses that ensued before and after partly to do with perhaps other illnesses uh, also to do with the civil wars that led to um, the confinement frequently of royalists like Poulter in the 1640s, uh, when you know they they were not the popular uh, crowd, and it was not necessarily safe to be moving about. She writes about that sense of confinement. But what's fascinating is that in that confining circumstance she's motivated to find such freedom as she can partly through her verse and she speaks very movingly about that through her verse and through her mental universe that she enlarges um, by imagining herself flying up into space and revolving with the stars as well as dissolving into dust and then revolving into different atomic forms she has this most amazingly wide-ranging mind despite apparently being so uh, limited and isolated uh, in her person, in her body.
0: So how many poems do we have from Hester?
1: Um, It depends how you count them. And so that's why I always say, this is my my phrase, 120-odd poems. the person who really first put them on the map and counted them for us uh, was Alice Airdley who came up with the first printed edition and came out with that in 2014 based on her earlier dissertation work and we've tried to, I mean, because our work in the Poulter project, our editions are you know, really following on, on her as we, we did the original work, went back, consulted the manuscript, photographed it, transcribed it, and so on um, but we also recognize that we're, with Airdley, part of an emergent Tradition for Poulter, a scholarly tradition of thinking about her. And so we've tried to keep that, those same numbers in play in order to make the conversations about her verse more feasible.
0: Yep. So, this project that you are working on with Wendy Ball, introduce it to us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Okay, the Poulter project. Uh, emerged out of uh, the seminar that Wendy and I did uh, where we were asking people to reflect on different ways of incorporating Hester Poulter's manuscripts newly brought to light um, into our discussions, into into courses, into maybe op-ed pieces, different ways of bringing her further to light rather than, because so often what we find is that these sorts of um, figures or their works are found, and there's a great big celebration, and hooray, hurrah, everyone loves a new find. The moment of discovery is validated and valorized, but what comes after that? It's the hard work. Um, And one form of hard work we decided to take was to edit her work, not because it hadn't been done. Alice Airdley's work was out there and is very valuable, but in part because we found that very rapidly it fell out of print, and what once was found was once again lost. Um, Now, as it happens, there's a happy ending there, which is that her work is back in print now, um, more or less at the same time as our editions in the Poulter Project came to light. In November 2018, we launched the site. It's not complete, and we launched it in that state deliberately in order to attract uh, the contributions of more editors. It's very much a collaboration. Wendy Wall and I direct it, but we have at this point, there must be over a dozen contributors, both of what we call amplified editions, which are elaborate, uh, often lengthy, sometimes more scholarly editions that are designed to contrast with the ones that Wendy and I made as a kind of baseline. We call them elemental editions. They have minimal notes, and they're modernized, and they're really meant as a sort of easy on-ramp for a first-time reader of Poulter. Um, but we set those in conjunction and in parallel with these amplified editions, which come from a whole host of contributors, um, and with the transcriptions of the manuscript, which are just much uh, sort of a more technical way of, of looking at it, and images of the manuscript, page by page images of the manuscript itself. Um, so it's an open access website. And we've both used it in our courses as others. and. Uh, it's been really rewarding. It's been a wonderful experience and connecting with scholars all around the world.
0: So what's your long-term goal or your hope for this project?
1: Well, our long-term goal is certainly to finish the editions, but not just them. We also, and again, this is one of the affordances of the digital medium, uh, we pair those with what we call curations, which are sort of virtual exhibits of both visual and verbal materials. So other texts that seem to resonate with Clifford's or uh, images from the periods, so portraits or drawings that again bring to life some of the things she's talking about that are no longer familiar to us. So those curations we'd like to have for all of the poems. We'd also like to have a, a pedagogical arm of the site in which we, as I said, we and many other uh, instructors we know of have already incorporated this material into our courses and that we can share that again as part of the larger collaborative approach uh, of the site. Yeah.
0: Um, so I was just thinking as well as, as you were talking about having the, um, the digital images and I was thinking back to our physical books that we were talking about earlier and thinking about the physicality of books. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how is it different as a scholar when you're working with an image or copy compared, even if it's like a, you know, a nice photograph compared to that original?
1: Oh boy. It's, (laughs) they are different, and they are both necessary. That's one of the interesting things that I've found. Uh, So as I say, I did visit the book in Leeds with my camera, and so I was there and was able to photograph each and every one of its pages in the most high resolution that I could come up with <laughs> with whatever camera I had and brought those images home to work with them and that was great uh, but what you also find is that that's often not enough and so we would zoom in to the highest possible resolution to try to determine what is that word or what is that letter that single character or and sometimes it was simply impossible to tell it didn't have to do with resolution it has to do with you know if you can check on the reverse of a of a leaf you can see if it's bleed through the ink has bled through from that side or if it is a mark on that it's sort of technical and at one level Mm -hmm. trivial but uh that's the kind of work that's the kind of nitty-gritty work that needs to be done when you're editing a text Um, and so it was a real lesson in the value again of those rare books rooms and in maintaining the integrity of those material originals no matter uh, how good our, you know, facsimile technology might grow.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining me today and for this wonderful conversation. And we will be providing links to your to the Poulter Project um, in our show footnotes um, for our listeners as well. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much,
2: Allison. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, and past episodes on our website, brocku.ca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is by Serena Atella and theme music is by Calatamam. The credits have been read by me, Serena Atella. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for Studio and Web Support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.